Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombus donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombus.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi everyone and welcome to the Squiggly Careers podcast. I'm Sarah and this week we have one of our extra special episodes uh, with a guest. As ever, we always invite guests who we think share in our mission to make work better for everyone. And this week I'm really delighted to welcome Molly Westerfee, all the way from the US, which is very exciting, very international for us. And not only has she and her friend Liz written an amazing book called No Hard Feelings, they also have my favourite Instagram account. I feel like you're not really meant to have favourites, but I have to say, if you don't follow them, I think they're just at Liz and Molly. Their illustrations are very knowing, very funny, and always really make me smile. Uh, we'll probably talk about those a bit more as we go through today's interview. And so, as I said, Molly is the author of a book called No Hard Feelings, and they very helpfully provide a good Twitter summary for what the book's all about. So, No Hard Feelings is a visual guide for how to embrace emotion at work and become more authentic and fulfilled while still staying professional. So, it sounds like the absolute dream. And so, Molly, welcome to Squiggly Careers Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Delighted to talk to you today and such a fascinating topic, and I've loved reading the book. As ever, for people listening maybe to our special guest episodes for the first time, I'll do a book review at the end, which we never share with our guests beforehand. So, we like to keep them on kind of tenterhooks. But I thought it might be good to start with some quick fire questions so that we can all get to know Molly and what she does a little bit more. So, Molly, describe for us what you do in just three words. Organizational designer, writer. Amazing. And finish these sentences. I'm at my happiest when? I'm reading. I'm at my most frustrated when? I have had too many social events in a day. Oh, it sounds like we are very connected on the introvert scale, which I'm sure we will kind of talk about because they would be very similar to my answers. And if you could change one thing at the moment about work that you think it would make it kind of better for everyone, what one thing would you change? I think in the workplace, we often don't take the time to talk about how we want to work together. Yeah. So we're in back-to-back meetings all day, every day, and we never take the time to say, how do we want to communicate? How do we want to collaborate? How can we get to know each other better? Yeah, that's you often, I guess, the pressures of work feel that you jump in really quickly. Exactly. You get so task-focused and action-focused that probably spending that time to agree how we're going to work, almost like what are the ways that we're going to work, just exactly. feels like a step that gets missed, doesn't it, so often. And actually, the few times I have done it, it's always been worth its weight in gold, mm. you know, because you just get to know people that little bit better. So let's start by talking a little bit about emotions. I think lots of our listeners will probably be in a similar position to me where in the past, perhaps we've tried to hide our emotions at work. 
that you think maybe bringing emotions to work isn't a good thing. So what prompted you to sort of really start to delve into this world of emotions and work out how they can actually be beneficial to us at work rather than something that kind of gets in our way? Well, I think the idea is we are humans and so we are going to have emotions whether we like it or not. And when we were both in our early 20s, we felt like we needed to be professional. There was no room for emotions <laughs> yeah. at work. And But really, we can actually learn a lot. And if we embrace emotions, they can be really helpful signals to us. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And so... Do you think there are some myths around emotions at work that we need to crack or dispel people's myths almost around that emotions are a bad thing? Do you think from the research that you've done from kind of writing the book that you go, emotions are always good, all emotions are good? I mean, I have heard that from um, a therapist we talked to that says there is no such thing as a bad emotion. Mm -hmm. We are humans. That is just a biological response. And often when we think about more negative emotions like envy or anger, that we try to tamp those down. And that's actually worse, you know, to say I'm not going to pay attention to why I'm having this emotion. Now, that being said, I don't think we want to run around the office screaming and yelling at each other all the time. But the answer is not avoidance and repression. We actually have to understand the underlying issue. Yeah, yeah. And in the book, you've structured it, um, which I really liked, around seven new rules for emotion at work. So what I thought we would do today is pick three of those rules, which Molly and I are going to talk about in quite a lot of detail and explore a little bit, both in terms of what those rules are and what they mean for you, the action that you can take at work. And then you can read the rest of them in the book, because otherwise we'd be here for a long time. And so the first one that I picked, which I was really fascinated about, because I think it's potentially a bit counterintuitive to lots of things that you read um, about careers today, or certainly if you watch any of the famous commencement speeches that you get, particularly actually in the US in terms of universities, lots of people telling you to do what you love, do the thing that you're really passionate about. And one of your rules, kind of new rules for emotions, is to be less passionate about your work. So tell me a bit more about that. Yeah, so well, we're sort of being facetious, but the idea, <laughs> is to, the idea is to care less about work and more about yourself and not to say that you shouldn't find something that you enjoy and you're passionate about. But when we were both in our early 20s, it felt like um, so much of our identity was wrapped up in what we did at work. And the research shows that ultimately that, that doesn't lead to happiness. That you need mm-hmm. to have an identity outside of work as well. And no one is going to draw the lines for you. You have to figure mm-hmm. out how to draw the lines. So, you know, I have lots of friends who still haven't figured that out and yeah. um, they're not happy about it. And so it's a process of trying it out. So you might say to yourself, okay, I'm going to just not check my work email after 8 p.m. or on weekends. And It'll be fine. Nothing's going to fall <laughs> yeah. apart unless you're a surgeon. Like, this is not life or death. And so you have to figure out, how do I set my own boundaries? And then how do I care more about myself and schedule in more time to do the things that make me feel good? Yeah. And what do you think gets in the way? Because I think most of us recognize we'd like to do more exercise, work a bit less. And people sort of buy into the benefits of, you know, we know if we eat better, if we sleep more, all those kind of things we know fundamentally those things are good for us and like you say so many people find it really hard what do you think the kind of biggest barriers are at the moment habit i mean i think it's really just human nature we get into a routine and that's hard to break and so if you're in a routine of working long hours it's like well that's just what i do i think trying to find moments of reset so you might say like okay after 
this holiday I'm going to come back and do this. Um, yeah. That can be helpful for switching habits. Yeah, almost what are those natural points where you can just go, I'm just going to rebalance a little bit. Right. Because I guess it's rare, I think, where these things become a steady state. You know, these things are sort of constantly moving and calibrating. So I often feel like with this is almost about kind of self-care and thinking about you as much as kind of your work. That needs to be something that you keep coming back to because it's so easy, isn't it, to like slip into old bad habits. What do you do now? Now that you know this and having written the book, do you always practice what you preach? I mean, no, it's really hard. I try to meditate every day and I don't always do it. But I think if I put it on my calendar, it's easier. And I think it's trying to remember the long-term benefits of it. Like I'm like, oh, I don't want to leave my desk to go do this right now. But I know that I will sleep better if I do it. Yeah. And have you noticed from any of the people you work with or perhaps from Liz, other things that people do that seem to work really well? Definitely just taking small micro breaks during the day is super important. So taking lunch, taking a walk, meditating, having a, we write about in the book, an after work shutdown ritual. Yes. Um, So just like what are the things that you do at the end of the day that allow yourself to walk away and not think about work anymore? So, you know, going through an email, writing a list of things to do for the next day. Yeah. Really helpful. I remember reading that in the book, actually, you gave an example of somebody who gets to the kind of the end of their day and they will just physically go these are things I just need to remember for tomorrow and then once they've written the list that is their then end of the day and I was thinking I I find that quite interesting because I often work I work quite well in the evening so I'm definitely more of a night owl Mm. than a early bird Helen's much more of an early bird Uh, so we work quite well because that kind of complementary and I work quite a lot in the evenings so sometimes we record this podcast in the evening often I'll put my little boy to bed and then do a bit more work after he's gone to sleep it was really making me kind of pause for thought and thinking, actually, I don't have that moment where I suddenly stop working. Often I feel like I work sort of then merges into literally me going into bed and going to sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not always sure that's a good thing because then my brain is often still whirring. Mm-hmm. I'd like to be able to do either mindfulness or meditation. And that could be like a good bridge to, OK, I finish work, whatever time it might be. And I'm now going into like relax mode. Mm-hmm. Um but I've always found that quite difficult, that sort of, even though it's only 10 minutes, I've tried to use the Headspace app. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've tried that. And honestly, what would happen in my head is that I just keep going through work I've not done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think we all have these, like, I think everyone has their kind of own specific challenges of, like, I'm, I'm quite good at making sure I do exercise and do walking, mm-hmm. quite good at taking breaks in the day, actually. I've always been really good at that. But I'm not very good at kind of the shutting down in the evening thing. But I am better at shutting down at weekends. Mm. It's funny, isn't it, how mm. you, you sort of do know how to do it. Yeah. You're not very good at doing it consistently. Yeah. Well, I think with the evenings, it's difficult. Like, I mean, I find when I check my work email after dinner, then I'm thinking about it. Yeah. But I also think it's about, like, well, I find when I lay down to go to sleep, that's when my brain starts processing what happened yeah. during the day, which is not a convenient time. No. Like, I'd like to be asleep right now. And so it's about saying, okay, well, that's clearly something my brain needs to do. Yeah. And so I'm not giving my brain time to do it during the day. Then it happens when I go to sleep. So for me, I do a meditation like I try to do it when I come home from work or on the way home from work where I just sort of review everything that happened during the day. And somehow that allows my brain to sort of say like, I mean, I just go, okay, I woke up, I commuted, had this meeting, had this meeting. And like it doesn't take that long. Yeah, yeah. But it allows the brain to not then obsessively go back to what happened. Yeah, and what's nice about that is you're not ignoring it or avoiding it you're still letting yourself do a process that probably you do need to go through in the day. 
but you're just recognising that it could be more beneficial if you kind of move that process around a little bit. Right, right, exactly. Make it more convenient. People must talk to you a bit about um, wanting to find jobs that they're passionate about because often people have conversations with us where maybe they're quite far from something that they really enjoy but they still kind of really care about it. And I think there are sometimes two different things. It's like, do you really love your job? Maybe not, but you do care about doing a good job. Is your advice to people to try and find that combination of actually you need to care enough and that's when you'll do your best work, but never letting that overtake then looking after yourself? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, everyone's different and there are people who really thrive in a job where they... um, find a lot of deep meaning and passion and then there's yeah. some people who don't need that as much and I think that's totally fine so just understanding what do you need from a job and how do you match it but I think that even if you are really passionate about your work you don't want to end up in a one-dimensional life still like it's yeah. still important to find the other things um, which will actually probably make you better at work because you're yeah. gonna be bringing in other things to it. Yeah, well, I was reading, I think you actually might have referenced this in the book as well, the, um, you know, the 80-year study that they did at Harvard about the importance of social relationships Mm -hmm. and actually the the fundamental kind of principle of happiness generally is actually how strong those bonds are at kind of a very close level. The close relationship ties that you have are the biggest indicator, I think, of how happy you are. Mm -hmm. And if all of those come from work, I guess you're missing out on kind of friends, family and those kind of aspects which is a different dimension and you made a point in the book that I think really struck me in terms of things that actually I've said to other people in the past and try to remind myself of is that make sure you just don't overestimate your own importance mm-hmm. <laughs> which I think that's when you know when people worry about going on holiday or having a day off I will always say to them that's a real problem if you don't think you can go on holiday for a week there's something wrong here because no one can be that important in any company mm-hmm. that you can't go off and have a break. And I always say that to people, but then I reflected really recently. I was on holiday uh, for a week and I managed to put 95% of what I do. I was like, it's all fine. I can go away. It'll be fine. But I still had to hang on to one thing. I couldn't quite let one thing go. And then I remember coming back from that holiday and thinking, I don't think I added that much value anyway when I was on holiday. <laughs> and I think I had overestimated my own importance to that one thing because, to be fair, it was something I really cared about. But I'd connected those two things and not then seen the benefit and the advantage of just letting that go because actually I didn't add that much value. It was it was me kind of overestimating me needing to be involved. Uh, so I think if you've got people you work with or if you're trying to give people advice, just like remembering now, I think that everybody works in teams. No one really is by themselves doing work usually part of a project team you can usually plan in those breaks even if it's a small moment to get a coffee during the day yeah and I think we like the not wanting to let go of control I think is something that we think it's like oh I can't let down the other team members but really it's probably you and your need for control and your need for a sense of meaning and purpose it comes from being in charge of whatever it is and and that's fine but I also think yeah being realistic about like other people can probably do it and in fact it may be good for the team dynamic to let other people do it so yes. you're empowering others and they can see what goes on with this role and it's we all have a better um, cross understanding and then also just understanding too that like yes it's hard to let go of those things but if you're even still like 5% dialed in to the workplace during your vacation, you're not getting all of the mental benefits of it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what you have to remember. So I think remembering 
A, to give yourself a break, but also it actually helps other people. Mm-hmm. You know, it actually has these dual kind of benefits. I once remember going on holiday and completely kind of letting go of a project. Somebody else took it over and actually they were so brilliant. Yeah, and then right. I came back and I was like, oh, you're amazing. And that person got promoted very soon after that. But it was interesting how just giving people that space, it just yeah. also gives them opportunity and you get the opportunity to have a break too. Right. And so uh, the second new rule of kind of emotions at work that I thought was interesting and I think will be helpful for lots of people listening is you make the point that your feelings aren't facts. And I think so many of us assume that our feelings are kind of true or what everybody else is feeling. And there's also lots of assumptions that you make generally about behaviour that you observe. And this is definitely something that resonated with me around, you know, you maybe see somebody acting in a certain way and then this kind of internal monologue in your head about, well, why are they acting in that way? And how is it making me feel? And then the assumptions you make about what that says about you, what that person then thinks about you, and you can kind of really start spiralling. And someone once gave me some advice, actually, which is whenever somebody is kind of talking in a meeting, be really clear and sometimes just ask the question, is somebody stating a fact, an opinion or a feeling? Hmm. And I was like, I actually, it was a really small piece of advice that I ended up finding really useful because I think those three things get really blurred. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes opinions are muted as facts Mm -hmm. and they're not, they're just somebody's judgments. And sometimes feelings are also, people are like, oh, it's a feeling. So of course it's true to you, but it's not necessarily a fact in terms of then what you imagine the kind of next step on is. Mm -hmm. And so I think most of us would understand that kind of practically and kind of buy into that. I think the really hard thing is then, Okay, so what do I do about that? So what advice would you have for people if you're going, okay, feelings aren't facts, I I kind of understand that. What should we be doing differently? Mm, Yeah. So a lot of this comes up when you're trying to understand what someone else is feeling and you're interpreting their feelings as facts when you haven't checked in with them about whether or not that's actually how they're feeling. So in the workplace, we are moving from meeting to meeting and so – you might assume your boss is upset about something and then you move on to the next meeting and, you know, in your personal life, like if I, my husband is upset about something in the morning and I've sort of, I'm like worried about it, that I might text him later in the day and just be like, you know, I felt like things were a little bit off this morning. What's up? Yeah. Am I reading into this? But you're not going to do that with your boss. You're not going to no. two hours later be like, but they're reading into something, you know, or maybe you do, and that's good. But for most yeah. of us, we don't. And so then what happens is we just assume that the boss was feeling that way, and then we personalize it. So we're like, oh, they were upset in the morning, and it has to do yeah. with me and my performance. And then you don't check in on that, and you carry that forward. And then it snowballs in your head to be this outsized thing. And I've definitely done this before where I'm like, oh, And then a week later, she's still mad at me. And, like, it's this whole internal narrative that I have built up in my head when it's like, you know what? She may or may not have been upset. She might have just been, like, not smiling. And if she was upset, I don't really know that it's about me or not. So it's about checking the assumptions. And so you might say – just try to catch the person after and say, hey, you know, the story that I'm making up here is this, or yeah. um, this is how I'm interpreting this. Can you help me understand what's actually going on here? And I, most people won't be offended by, you know, just having to clarify, like, you're right, I was in a bad mood, but it has nothing to do with you. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because we don't do those kind of check-ins. I remember once doing um, a conference call with my boss, and she was a very kind of optimistic, positive person, kind of day-to-day. And on this call, she wasn't like that. 
And straight away I was like, she's not happy with me, I've done something wrong, was really worried about it. And almost more by chance, I think I saw her later that day, and I was like, oh, was everything all right on that call earlier? Didn't sound like you were maybe that happy with where we were getting to. And then she said to me, and it was so fascinating, oh, 20 minutes before that I'd had loads of IT issues. Everything had been going wrong, I'd been on the phone to IT, I couldn't get my computer working. So she'd come to that meeting frustrated and a bit kind of annoyed and that had obviously like seeped into then the conversation I was having. But yet, if I hadn't had that conversation, I had definitely been... And it, was, it wasn't an easy conversation either, so it was easy to make that interpretation. And I remember thinking, oh no, this has like gone really, really badly wrong. Sure. And it was all absolutely fine. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's, yeah. just, it's just not the big deal that I've made it out to be. Yeah, it's so common. And if people are... You talk in your book, actually, I think it's really helpful about people with kind of introvert versus extrovert tendencies and how that sometimes impacts in terms of our emotions and how we show up at work. Certainly I'm more introverted naturally by nature. Helen's much more of an extrovert. But I think having some of these conversations feels really hard, certainly feels really hard for me to do it in a way that that doesn't... I don't want to offend... I'm always very mindful I don't want to offend anyone. And sometimes these conversations don't happen that much in some companies and some cultures. I think it's... If you're in a company where... There's lots of open feedback and that's very kind of well established. Having those conversations is probably a bit easier. If you're in a company that maybe that this doesn't happen today, it could feel quite hard to have those chats. Any suggestions or advice that you've got from people that you've done or things that you've done yourself in terms of how to maybe do this for the first time if you're feeling a bit nervous about practically how to make this happen? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think... You just have to practice, and I think it just right. gets easier. I think we tend to make it a bigger deal in our head, and then we start avoiding it, and then it just gets scarier yeah, and okay. scarier. So some of it is just like, yeah, it's going to be scary the first time you do it, and then you'll you'll learn like you did. Like, oh, yeah. actually, by just asking that question, I got to a much better result, and I was much less worried after doing that, so it's worth it. And sometimes you just have to rip the band-aid off to do it. I also think just having an understanding of your own tendency, like you said, you're an introvert. Um, some people are, like, under-emoters, and so they're less comfortable sharing their emotions. Um, and just knowing that about yourself and, and being kind to yourself and saying, I know that this might be harder for me, but it's still important to do. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Back to kind of you as an individual. So if you're feeling kind of certain emotions... Is your advice and from everything kind of you've read in researching the book that you should be sharing those emotions? Because I think that's often, you know, things like crying at work comes up quite a lot. And most, lots of people have cried at work at some point. You know, you have a bad day. And I think people react to that in very different ways. So it's not happened to me that often. It's probably in 16, 17 years of working, I can probably think of two or three times where something at work has made me that upset that I'd want to cry. And my approach that has always been to leave the building, to like leave the building, go and get coffee, like get out of that space because I wouldn't want people at work to know that I was upset. Is it okay? do we think now, maybe to be more honest about the fact you might not want to cry at work, but should we be talking about the fact that we're feeling upset or does that depend a bit on you and how confident you feel in where you're working? Yeah, so crying at work is definitely something that I think uh, we feel like is shameful and yeah. to end our career. But what I really wish that people would know about crying at work is, especially for women, crying can be a sign that you're really angry about something. So yeah. where men would like yell about it, women will cry about it, um, and that's just biology. Or that you really care about something, and so. This idea of like, oh, you're just sad or upset and you need to be sort of contained isn't actually true. Like you might be naturally angry and that's okay. Or you might yeah. be um, really like caring a lot and that comes through tears. So I think it's when you cry, it's important to say, I'm having an emotional reaction right now. Can we come back to this in yeah. a few hours or whenever it is? And then you do want to excuse yourself. The research shows that you feel better if you cry alone or with one other person. Right. And so you do want to go sort of deal with the nerves and all of that and calm down. But then so often we don't think about what's the underlying issue behind the tears. We're just like, oh, I'm ashamed that I cried. I never want yeah. to think about that again. Yeah, yeah. But is it because you were frustrated or angry? Is it you hate your job? Is it that you were lacking sleep? Like, what was it? And then if it's something that's more chronic, like you hate your job or you're crying all the time, then you need to deal with those underlying issues. And I think for other, you know, if you're just feeling angry or upset, I do think it's helpful to people are most likely going to know. Like, I think we often think, oh, I'm upset and no one knows. Right, okay. <laughs> well, probably people are picking up on that in your body language or your tone of yeah. voice. And so just sort of naming it and saying, you know what, I'm really frustrated right now. It either has something to do with this or doesn't have something to do with this is really helpful thing to do. Yeah, I think that's probably the way that I've dealt with it before is kind of, like you say, take yourself off. But I felt okay with the fact that probably people could tell in that moment that I was emotional. And I was sort of going, 
well, that's okay because I actually am. Yes, and you're right. it matters to me. Or like you say, sometimes it actually has been probably because I've been angry and probably quite frustrated. So something has happened, but I'm definitely you know not someone to kind of shout or yell or I would never kind of storm out of a meeting room dramatically. I'd be much more likely to kind of find a quiet corner and cry to myself. <laughs> right. And I think part of it too, especially if you're a leader, it's really important to get what we call emotional granularity. So, so often with emotions, we say like, oh, I'm stressed. Yeah. Well, that's not helpful. That's a very general term. And if you just say to your coworkers, like, I'm feeling really stressed right now. Okay. But if you are able to do the inner work beforehand and say, why am I feeling stressed? Well, it's because I'm, I don't like procrastination and my team is procrastinating and I'm anxious about us meeting the deadline. Then you can say like, hey, guys, yeah. you know me. I really don't like getting down to the wire. I'm feeling a little bit anxious because we're getting down to the wire. What can we do to put some like shorter term deadlines in? Yeah, yeah. So actually it's almost not only sharing the emotion but sharing what, why you're having that emotion. Because exactly. I think in, in the why that you just described there – then also it stops other people, I think sometimes, particularly if you're in a leadership position, assuming things. I will now make an effort. If I've had a horrendous journey to work in the morning, and let's say it's made me a bit late for a meeting and I really don't like being late, I will often kind of say to somebody, oh, I've had a particularly bad start to the day, but I'm okay now, I've got my coffee and I'm okay now. But so that people just know, oh, okay, she might just need an extra 10 minutes before I go and chat to her about the yes. thing I need to talk to her about because yes. she just needs a moment to like breathe. And actually, I think people start to then recognise different people's kind of rhythms and rituals. But I think knowing those for yourself, actually, somebody I've worked with previously talked a lot about signalling was what she kind of called it. Mm. And this idea of particularly in leadership roles, signalling if you were going to be different from your norm. And certainly I've seen that actually, you know, the shadow that you cast as a leader is so important because you're impacting so many people. And ideally, actually, you want to be consistent because people mm -hmm. find it much easier when people are consistent. So if there is something that means that you're going to be moving away from that, whatever it is that you usually bring to work, letting people know that is actually really important. A bit like that example I gave of my boss at that time. She was very good and it didn't happen very often. But in those occasions where maybe something in her personal life had happened and it had really thrown her, she would actually just tell us. And what was really interesting by doing that, we all kind of rallied around her. We'd all be like, okay, so do you want us to go to a meeting on your behalf? Can we help? Mm. Is there something we can do? And not assuming that you need to deal with all those emotions and then the impact that those emotions have for yourself. I tried to do the signalling thing and not do it in like a big way. It's not like a big deal. It's just small ways of signalling that somehow there's going to be a deviation from the norm and that you're going to try your best to not let that impact you, but it might do and that none of us are perfect. Yeah, I love that. And so I've, that. I've always found that really useful. Um, so let's move on to the third rule that I found really helpful, particularly because of its kind of practical nature, which is where you talk about um, inspiring yourself. And I think this particularly pertinent, we talk about within Squiggly Careers now that actually everybody's development, everybody's career is now so personalised that you have to take accountability for yourself. You can't rely on other people or your organisation to like do the hard work for you. And I think that's the same in terms of inspiration is... You can't expect other people to go off and do that for you. You've got to work out, how am I going to inspire myself? And so what are some of the practical things that people can do, do you think, to get that inspiration? What have you seen work? Maybe what do you do in your day job at the moment? Mm, yeah. So we talk about motivation and, and yes, exactly. Mm. There's lots of ways that you can change things up or take the initiative on your own time. So one of them is 
viewing your place, your workplace as a place of learning. Yeah, nice. So how do you find ways to stay engaged? We, we are very motivated by learning, and so you might ask to swap skills with another colleague. Yeah. Um, you might try and take up a side hobby so you're learning something. Another thing is thinking about how to add fun and play into yeah. the workplace. So, again, you know, it's like, why do we think that the workplace has to be so boring and, and not yeah. fun? Like, um, Well, it's but, a place we spend loads of our time, so yeah. it's quite good if we can have some fun. Exactly, yeah. And so that can either be, like, directly related to the work or outside of the work. So at IDEO, where I work, we do this thing called Make Believe Time, which is every Thursday we have an um, arts and crafts lunch and it just gets us like re-inspired to do the work. It doesn't have anything to do with the work. It's just, yeah. you know, we're being paid to be creative. And so part of being creative is getting re-inspired. Oh, that's so lovely. Yeah. I've heard a few people start to talk a bit more about like play and kind of playfulness and just not taking almost like yourself or what you're doing kind of too seriously. Yeah. And just those, they can be really kind of small moments of fun. Someone described one thing they'd done they within their small team they'd done like a spotify playlist mm. where everyone in the team nominated a song that meant something to them in some way and then you put together a team playlist and then you all got together like over coffee listened to a bit of everybody's track and then people like chatted a bit about why they'd chosen that track mm. and it could be everything from the song you got married to to i used to play in a band this is me like playing in that band it didn't relate to what they did it didn't work in music it was just a fun nice. way to do it. And so they did try to use it as a way to get to know people better. But, like, it didn't sort of matter too much what it was they did as long as you felt like you knew people better as a result of it, mm-hmm. which I thought was really lovely. The other thing you talk a bit about in the book is job crafting. And actually what I found um, interesting about the way you talked about job crafting is the way that I'd always viewed job crafting was taking your current role and making maybe small adjustments or kind of amendments to what you do day to day so that you're maybe using your strengths a bit more, doing more of kind of things you are passionate about. And actually, the way that you also describe job crafting is slightly bigger than that, which is almost the mindset that you take to work. So the reason that you're actually at work and not feeling almost constrained by your job spec or what you think you maybe have to do. So there were some examples around things like, you know, people making coffee every day. What were you, are you there to make coffee or are you there to give people that small moment of, joy and the break that they're having in the day mm-hmm. so do you see lots of examples of people starting to almost like reframe how they think about what they do at work I mean I wish we saw more of it I think yeah I don't see it that often at yeah I don't I wish that that we did um and there's yeah another example we give in the book of a um conductor for the New York City subway trains who if she views her role as sort of taking care of the passengers and when one of the trains shut down she walked through each of the train cars to make sure everyone felt okay about it so that's really lovely but yeah I mean I feel like those are the sort of exceptions that you hear yes. about yeah I suppose it's often connecting like why you go to work often if you do like a staff survey or a colleague survey or, you know you're in a big company one of the questions will often be do you understand almost how what you do day to day contributes to the bigger organisation or to or even to the world more generally? And I think that's often where people find those things quite useful is to make those connections because most of us, I think, want to feel like we're part of something that's bigger than just our bit. Mm-hmm. I can sort of see how actually that gives you more inspiration. If you feel like, you know, you're working to something that's kind of bigger than just the kind of narrow definition of your job, 
actually that becomes more inspirational and you probably then do a better job. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting area, isn't it? But I, it's interesting you say there's not loads of examples because I couldn't think of lots of people I know that have done that, done that really well. So maybe it's something that organisations will start to do. I guess where you do see it, and if I think back even to where we started and the three words you used to kind of describe what you do, increasingly people are using their LinkedIn to describe what they do more about what they want to stand for and why they go mm, to work. Right. Actually, rather than going, I'm a director of marketing. You know, you are getting people going, I'm here to explore how to make the most of the world or I'm I'm here to help people realise their potential. Mm-hmm. You know, people kind of saying those kind of statements, potentially a bit cheesy, but they are they're more about your connection to why you work rather than just your I'm here to be a marketing director and make some marketing, whatever right. it might be. And Amazing work to write the book. Um, we've talked a bit on the podcast before about uh, we're in the same process, though, a bit behind you in terms of going through and it takes an awful lot of work and effort to get to kind of a final book. What do you feel now having kind of written it and immersed yourself in it? Because I know from experience you will have really immersed yourself in every word, every reference, every line. What do you feel like you now kind of do differently as a result of writing the book? Or did you feel like you'd made some of those changes and that's almost why you wrote it? Uh, one thing I do differently is I'm more vulnerable, for sure, with my right. emotions, um, especially if I'm, like, leading a team. I'm more willing to say I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling upset, um, because just the research and everyone we talked to said that that's such an important thing. And I think once you try it, you're like, oh, yeah, I can do this. And has it gone down okay when you've done it? You've yeah. always been like, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. That's good. Yeah. And I talked before a bit about some of the resources or things if people want to find out a bit more. One of the things that's really useful is on the website. Is the website No Hard Feelings? Is that right? It's Liz and Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E dot com. Dot com. So on Liz and Molly's website, they have a number of emotional assessments. And the emotional assessments look at you, your team and your organisation. And they're really quick and easy to do, but they're just a good bit of inspiration in terms of thinking about almost where you are emotionally what you do well and maybe some things to look out for. And so I did a couple of them because I was like, you know, you've got to practice what we preach. And I can't decide if mine's good or just makes me sound really boring. <laughs> so apparently I'm an even emoter, which means I'm somewhat emotionally expressive of both positive and negative emotions. I can get visibly excited, but I also hesitate to show my emotions. And apparently my main opportunity is focus on understanding what types of situations make you feel comfortable expressing your emotions and what situations don't. And actually, it's funny, isn't it? When you do these assessments, I know you often think, oh, yeah, that's definitely me. I did still read it and go, that is definitely me. Because <laughs> I think I am quite, I am relatively pragmatic and kind of even keeled. But there are probably some specific situations where then, because of my more introverted nature, I definitely withdraw. Yes. So actually, that's what happens to my emotions when maybe I'm under pressure or perhaps I'm working with someone who I find difficult or in a difficult situation. I definitely emotionally withdraw and it would definitely come out somewhere else but it certainly wouldn't come out at work I would sort of find a different place for it or as you talked about before I probably would be more in the avoidance camp mm-hmm. I'd think about it way too much mm-hmm. <laughs> that's always been kind of my problem is actually when I have challenges around my emotions I get very internalized and I feel like it just literally does little circuits like a hamster around in my brain yeah. so yeah. That, that's what I came out at and then I also got one which I think was the team one where I came out as a self-care protector. And that just talked about, I think probably because of this, I care about the kind of topics that we're talking about. I have worked hard to try and create routines and habits around kind of self-care and some boundaries. But uh, one of the things it talked about, and I was like, oh, this is definitely me, 
to make sure that I didn't end up compulsively making hobbies more work than work. Mm-hmm. And I am like a perpetual side hustle, side project person. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh my God, within five questions, they already like know <laughs> everything about me. And so actually one of the things I've started to try and do is have some hobbies that are really far from work. And that's actually been a bit harder since I've had a baby to like make all of that work. And I miss that at the moment. I miss having some things where you just turn up and think, this is like nothing to do with anything I do at work. And so I've done a bit of yoga, but that's kind of disappeared a little bit. I used to play a bit of netball, that's disappeared a bit. And so one of my kind of self-imposed actions from doing these assessments was thinking, I sort of need a hobby that's just different. Mm -hmm. And I heard someone yesterday um, tell me they're starting like painting classes just with their sister. I think it's always quite nice to do something with someone as well. I mean, I'm not going to paint because I definitely don't have that, those artistic abilities. But I do think, oh, it would be nice to have something once a week where you're just like... I'm learning something or doing something that's so far removed from my day-to-day. Right, so important. So if you want to do those assessments, definitely go online and do them. Like I say, they're really quick and easy. And in terms of the book itself, so having read it, I actually read a really early version because we sort of share an editor in the UK, so I got a kind of special ringbound version. So I've read it actually a couple of times. And the thing I think that I love the most, and I mentioned it at the start about the kind of Instagram channel, is just the mix of both the writing and illustrations. I don't think I've ever seen illustration used in such an impactful and kind of useful way to tell stories. And they are so funny. They, they just really make me laugh. So there's one, um, which I'll do my best to describe, which I looked at and just thought, oh, I think they've done an illustration of me, which is what happens to an introvert when the phone rings or when you have to make a phone call. And there's just these images of somebody making a phone call, hearing the dialing tone, looking a bit anxious, and then when it goes to voicemail, looking really happy. <laughs> and you know, when you think, I don't want to admit that that's what I think or feel, but I was like, that's definitely what yeah. I feel. Because I, I don't like, I've never liked making phone calls. I don't mind meeting people in real life. Or actually, and I don't mind writing to people. But there's something about phone calls that I think if you're an introvert, it just makes you, you're like, oh no. It's, yes. it's kind of, yeah. so that one really made me laugh. But throughout the book, what you'll find is it's really practical. There are very clear takeaways. So at the end of every chapter, Molly and Liz summarise takeaways and at the end of the book as well. So I think you're left in no doubt of kind of what you can go off and do, which I think people will find really useful. So it's one of the few business books, if we put it in kind of a business book category, that is both practical and made me smile. I think very very few books managed to get that combination. And I think whether you're, we've both talked today um, about being a bit more introverted, But actually, the book talks about those kind of dynamics in terms of your tendencies and your preferences and recognises, I think, that people will do these things in different ways, which I also thought was really nice. So it's not like you're talking the book about going, oh, one size fits all. You have to kind of do it in this way. It's, oh, this might be better if you're a bit more introverted or you're more likely to do this if you're a bit more extroverted. So I think recognising the kind of spectrum, I guess, of how people experience emotions at work was really helpful. And so my one question on things where I was thinking, what could they maybe have done differently or what more would I like to know from them? And I was thinking a lot of people who I think will read your book, who I'm sure follow on Instagram, I suspect are more emotionally enlightened is how I would describe them. They're very kind of open to learning, wanting to get better. What do we do about those people who we think maybe express emotions in the wrong way? at work or are quite destructive or you know there's a lot of talk about kind of toxic workplaces and you know people like Elon Musk talking about working 120 hour work weeks all those kind of things who are probably the least likely people to know some of this stuff or to kind of read the book 
And people listening will definitely be working with some of those people. So, you, you know, you might be going, well, I can do all this for myself. Great. What do you think we do about the people who maybe are less enlightened? Or do you think we have to just leave them to it because you can't control that? Yeah, I think unfortunately you can't control that. Uh, we talk in the book about working with jerks and other types of team members who yeah. are not fun. And part of it is just having empathy. So understanding that if they're a really horrible person to be around, they have to be around themselves all day, every day. Yeah. So like <laughs> you're dealing with them for a few hours. They have to live with that all the time. And I'm sure there's some deep emotional issues that haven't been dealt with. Um, So just sort of saying, you know, I'm going to have compassion for this. And then also we write in the book, do not ingest, which is like if there's somebody who's really toxic, if you can try to be around them as least as possible. You still have to work with them. Just say, I'm not going to take this personally. I'm going to try and let this roll off my shoulder, put myself in a bubble. Like this has nothing to do with me. And that can be really difficult, but it's important. Yeah, I think that's someone once said to me, Given, you know, you may be working with somebody who's particularly challenging, think about how much of your headspace you're allowing that person to have. To take up, yeah. To take up. And I was thinking, and for me, especially with the way that I kind of work and I'm quite reflective, it was so much. Then they said, imagine how much of their headspace you're taking up. And I was like, <laughs> that would literally be zero. Yeah. You know, like, they definitely don't care about me or they're definitely not yeah. worrying about me. And I'm spending all of my time yeah. worrying about them, maybe what they think of me, what they've said to me, or like you say, taking kind of things really personally. And it is really hard to not kind of let that permeate you. But the other bit of advice I got from a very senior kind of chief executive in the UK was when that happens to her, she lets herself have 24 hours to like mull it over, almost like wallow in it a bit. Uh-huh. And then after that 24 hours, she has like almost like a psychological cutoff huh. where she writes down one thing she's learnt from that, and then she tries to, like, use that as, like, a moment to move on. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I really like that. So I've tried to do that a bit. So when I've found that something's really got to me or someone has really got to me, you almost precisely, she's like, I'll literally walk out of a meeting that's been really tough, look at the time, and then be like, right, by this time tomorrow, I'm just going to make a little note to write something down. And, you know, like we were talking about shutting down at the end of your day, it's sort of that same thing about having a little ritual to not let that ingestion happen for too long, but recognising that perhaps you need to do it for a bit. Right. And that perhaps it's unrealistic to just go, I'm not going to let it get to me. Right. Because I think that's what I tried for a bit. I tried to just do the, I know that I shouldn't let this get to me, but I think it actually ended up getting to me more because I almost didn't allow myself a little bit of it. Right. But then there's kind of an end moment. So I found that quite useful. I love that. Maybe we need to do some sort of like manifesto somehow that mm. kind of we can get out to everybody. I was thinking, you know, when you um, read a book and then you're like, right, who are all the people that I need to read this book? And that was quite a long list. (laughs) For both good reasons and challenging reasons. (laughs) So um, if people want to find out more about you, we've talked about Instagram, they can go to your website. Where can they get their book from? Presumably Amazon. Yep, Amazon, (laughs) any other place where books are sold. And if they want to find out more about you, anywhere else that they can go? Um, Yes, so I'm on Twitter at Molly West, and um, you can find our bios. It's, again, Liz and Molly, M-O-L-L-I-E dot com. More information there. Lovely. And we always end our kind of podcast with guests asking you to share your best piece of career advice. So this could be a piece of career advice that you've been given and you found really useful. It can just be your own advice, any kind of words of wisdom. So just as your kind of final thought, what would you share with everyone as your best piece of career advice? Well, thinking about squiggly careers, one thing my mom said to me was, you know, you really can't make a 
undoable mistake in your early 20s. Like your whole purpose for your early 20s is trying to figure out what path to take. And so nothing is, it's not too late. You know, you can quit a job, you can change career paths. Like it's okay to just keep restarting. Oh, that's really nice. It's okay to keep restarting. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Molly. I've loved chatting about No Hard Feelings. I really enjoyed reading the book. And honestly, the highlights of my day are your illustrations on Instagram. They just always really make me smile. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.